So welcome. My, my, my name is Michael Hendricks, as you've already heard. And uh, my wife and I, we live in Boulder, Colorado. And so we flew out here to spend some days with you all. And they're having a great time, really a lot of fun. We have three kids, Elias, Megan, and Anna. And my youngest, Anna, in May, is graduating from college, our last child. It's a good feeling. It's a fun feeling. Um, I'm happy to be here, and, and we get to talk this morning about some fun stuff. Um, and it's going to start with my confusion. My confusion as a pastor of discipleship at the church I was at. Um, I was a disciple, a discipleship pastor at a church called Flatirons Big Church in the Boulder area. Basically, I'm, I'm, uh, my responsibility was how do we help all these people that are coming to church, that brand new Christians, how do we help them grow into maturity? How do we help them grow their character so they look more and more like Jesus in, the, in their daily interactions with people? And how do, I, how do we teach them to love like Jesus loves, right? As I did all, I did all sorts of things as a discipleship pastor would do, but I started seeing a pattern that troubled me. And that pattern had to do with the word sometimes. And it seemed like sometimes the things we do as Christians, the typical Christian ways we think we grow... Those worked really well and brought lots of change to people's lives. And other times they didn't. And for some people they did, and for some people they didn't. And for some kinds of problems, those worked really well. And for other kinds of problems, honestly, it's, they seem to not work at all. And so very quickly as a pastor, I had a lot more questions than I had answers. And uh, one of the big questions I had is, why do we not see more just radical transformation of character? I mean, I'm thinking how kind of a psychopathic narcissist murderer comes to know Jesus and then ends up writing 1 Corinthians 13 on love. How did that happen? I mean, that's what we call transformation, right? And so um, why don't we see more of that? We do see some, but why don't we see more? And even in my own life, it's not just these people out in church I'm frustrated with. Even in my own life, there's, I've, I've run into stubborn areas of my life that almost seemed, I don't know, resistant to growth. And again, the usual Christian prescription that I would use did not seem to work in those problems. And so that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, what do we do when the usual Christian prescriptions don't work? What I do want to say first, though, is, is I'm not implying or saying that the traditional Christian practices that we associate with Christian growth don't work at all. Um, I'm thinking of things like, like reading the Bible and prayer and uh, listening to good Christian teaching, being in, you know, reading and studying the Bible. All of those things have had profound effect on my life and uh, have actually formed who I am as a person. And many of my deepest encounters with God over my life has been through Scripture, Him speaking to me through His Word. But again, there's some areas of my life and some kinds of problems where it seemed like the Bible alone didn't move the problem. It, just, it was too stubborn or something. I didn't know. I just thought that maybe I'm broken. Maybe I'm just a broken person or maybe the problem's with me. I didn't know. And so this is kind of big stuff. You know, I'm starting out with some confusion and some of my frustration. So let's uh, take this to God and pray, and then let's dive into some good examples of what we're talking about. Lord, thank you so much that, um, that our, our gaze gets to be transfixed on your face. Thank you that you're with us in this room today. Thank you that we're never alone. 
And I thank you that you're with us even when we are confused and when things don't seem to be working. Even in those you meet us and your great wisdom uh, is always our, our, our guide and your son is our good shepherd. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen. So what do we do when, when, the great, when the typical Christian prescriptions we have don't seem to work? Okay. Often we're even at, afraid to ask those questions, right? For a while I was. I kind of hit them to myself. But my confusion about my job, especially about how people change as I tried to help them change, I just couldn't ignore it anymore. And I got to the point where I'd find myself in our church, in my office, sitting down, looking at my dry erase board, empty dry erase board, kind of asking God to give me a picture. Like, I don't know where to go. And essentially, you know, I had to admit to him, I don't know how to do my job as a pastor. You know, that's, that was kind of like my prayer. Dear God, I don't know how to do my job as a pastor. Amen. And God heard that prayer. Thankfully, he heard that prayer. A month or two later, I got a phone call from a man who uh, had come to our church and visited and saw some of the stuff I was trying to do with discipleship. And he said, you're doing some good stuff here. We need to start meeting. And we grabbed some other pastors in and started meeting every month to have lunch together and talk about discipleship. And it was during one of those meetings where this man said, you know, Michael, as we're studying and reading these books on how we grow, I think we're ignoring um, how God designed the brain and what, what role that plays. And uh, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I kind of ignored the question, if I'm honest. Thankfully, the next month, he was persistent, and he goes, you know, again, I'm going to repeat myself. I think we need to also study neuroscience and how God designed the brain for us to grow. And I said, Bob, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean neuroscience and discipleship? And he said, well, let me invite my good friend Jim Wilder to our next lunch next month, because I think he can explain it better. And so uh, we had lunch that following month, and we sat down together with this stranger person I've never met. And, uh, and he sat down at the table, and he looked across the table and said, Michael, um, I don't know why he looked at me, by the way. There was other people there, but he looked across the table at me and said, Michael, what would you like out of this time together? And I kind of just shared with him my frustrations as a discipleship pastor and said, I don't, I don't think I understand how people grow. I think I'm missing a lot, big, of the, big pieces of the puzzle. And then Jim Wilder said, you know, I think it might help you if you understood a little bit about how the brain was designed to mature us and to grow our character. And, uh, and we found over time, he opened me to some things I'd never known, never seen before. And from brain science, we actually see the fingerprints of God and how he designed us to grow as his children. And many of the skills that we learn from brain science are also all over the Bible. And so, but we've lost a lot of our sense of importance of a lot of things. And a lot of times we'll even read scriptures that have good combinations of Bible and brain science, but we don't think they're important. They've been lost in our culture. So we kind of just skip over them and don't, don't stop and realize the importance of those things. And these are all largely relational skills. Things like attuning to people's emotions. When's the last time someone offered to teach you and train you how to attune to people's emotions? But it's incredibly important for the human brain. Bonding at a deep level that's mutually satisfying. Regulating our emotions, even when we're in distress and really big emotions and difficulty. Helping other people when they're in big emotions in a way that actually helps them and doesn't make it worse. And learning to live out of our true identities. 
That's the one I'd never heard of, even talked about. We're supposed to live out our identity. How do I know who I am? And loving our enemies. Something that Jesus clearly taught about. And so my wife and I, we learned from Jim Wilder. He and his wife kind of opened their doors to us and, we, and invited it to us to everything that they did. We jumped kind of into the deep end of the pool with them. And uh, what we learned is that we really have two brains. We humans have two brains. We have a left brain and a right brain. We have a right brain, which is our relational brain, and it's the most powerful brain, and it's the faster brain. It's so fast that it's actually faster than our consciousness. So things happen in our right brain that we just know, but we can't, we don't have conscious, we don't know why we know it. It's kind of weird, very, very fast. And we have a rational brain, which is our left brain. This is what we think of as the brain usually, solving problems, you know, coming up with explanations for what's happening here and uh, words and, and uh, all this kind of strategy, everything is all left brain. And, uh, and they were created to work together. Left brain and right brain were really created. They do have a different focus, each one, and they, they were designed to work together. And however, Jim said, the relational brain, the right brain, has largely been ignored in the church over the last 500 years. And we've put most of our discipleship into the left brain. But it's the right brain where most character is formed and where we mature. Maturity and character formation are primarily right brain skills. And so the right brain, these right brain relational skills have gone missing in the church. Early, if you read early church fathers in the first 400, 500 years, they were practicing back and forth and sending letters, trying to do these kinds of things. It was very active and like a, almost like a growing greenhouse. And we've lost that ever, you know, especially since in the last five or 600 years. And we may not even think they're important. And so um, we strongly sense the need from God to bring these skills back in and to couple them with the left brain stuff that we've been doing well. Like br- believing the right things, that's left brain. Loving really well is right brain. Can't we do both of those? Believing the right things doesn't necessarily assure that we're loving people well. We've all met those people. I mean, they have all their I's dotted and their T's crossed theologically. But you see the way they treat people, and it's like, hmm, right? So we're not saying you drop that. It's just we need both. So when we come into like a more full-brained faith, we're going to see some interesting changes. This is the things my wife and I have seen in our lives. We become naturally more curious. We're more flexible, more resilient, and we have less of a need to prove to people that we're right. We look at everything in life through a relational lens first. We love well, we connect well, and we can repair relational problems and ruptures in a way that actually makes the, the relationship stronger afterwards. And we experience the peace and the joy of Jesus more consistently. All of these are strong relational skills we can learn. They're actually trainable. And if we look at Jesus, he's kind of our hero in this thing. Um, he encountered people in his life in his t- three years in ministry and before as well, with all kinds of problems, stuck in big emotions, all sorts of stuff. And, uh, and he also didn't always answer people with, with the tr- traditional Christian prescriptions that we think. Sometimes he did. Other times he didn't. And so what we're going to do is look at example in the Bible. It's a picture of transformation. And so let's go to Luke 19. And this is the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. You've probably read it before. It's an interesting story. It's packed with lots of really interesting historical details, but also, believe it or not, it's packed with some really interesting brain 
details that I'm going to highlight for us, okay? And so here's our scripture. Um, in Luke 19, read along with me. And it said, he, this is Jesus, Jesus entered into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a man of, he was small in, in stature. Okay, let's stop right there. There's some important details that you won't really understand the story if you don't understand these details. Um, especially if you weren't living in the first century in, in Israel, you might not understand it under Roman occupation. Uh, there's not a single word in this story that's missing. It's like a really good recipe that has all the ingredients it needs. And there's no extra ingredients there that don't need to be there, but there's no neat ingredients that are there that are missing. It's, so everything in this story is important. And so let's look at one of those details. It says that Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was rich. This is a very important detail if you want to understand this story. And to put it into context, let's imagine that we're, we are in a similar situation as, as, Zacchaeus, as the, uh, the Israelites in, in the first century. Let's, let's imagine that our country went to war and that the Roman Empire still existed and they defeated our government and our country and they started filling our towns and cities with their soldiers and running things. And then they started demanding a cut of all the money that you made. But for the Romans, that was too below them to, to go collect the taxes because they're more important than we are. And so they would recruit some of our fellow Americans to go do the tax collecting, to do their dirty work, so to speak. And so suddenly one of your neighbors, three houses down on your street, starts every week coming and knocking on your door and demanding a part of your money. Over time, your houses and your cars start falling into disrepair as a result of this. You have no money to fix the leaky roof in your house, and you're just barely getting by now. Okay? Meanwhile, this neighbor of yours, three houses down, that's collecting these taxes... You see that he has two brand new cars and he's putting a new addition on his house. You can hear the carpenters and the people doing all this, making this really nice addition to make his house bigger. And uh, how do you think you might feel about this neighbor of yours? This is the situation that they were in in this century. So when it says that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he could not, we often miss the implication here. Jesus is coming to town. The street is lined with people because he's famous. But someone could have, you know, and he's a short man. He probably comes up to here on me, let's say. Someone could very easily have just gone like this. Zacchaeus comes here, and they could have gone like that. No harm, no loss. But no one did that. Not a single person let him through into the front. You know, it's like, I'm not opening a space for that man. He just, he just caused my business to fail. I don't have a job now, and I don't know how to feed my wife and my kids. Right? He just bought himself a new car with my paycheck. He can, he can go somewhere else. I'm not going to tell you where he can go. Everyone hated him. He not only collected taxes, though, but he also collected extra that he took for himself. And so he was not only a traitor to our country, he's also a thief. He's a thief and a traitor. And you can't do anything. One word, he's connected to the Romans. One word, and he can throw you out of your house and kill you and do whatever he wants. You know, he's, he's causing my financial ruin. He's causing our financial ruin while he is living in luxury. 
So this was understood by everybody on the streets, everybody there waiting for Jesus to come. They knew he was coming down the streets. Nobody let Zacchaeus in. And this gives you an idea of the emotional background that isn't stated, but it's very much implied by this story. Okay? So let's continue. So he ran ahead. He's a resourceful person. And he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, and I'm going to push pause right there for a second because there's some important details we're going to miss. And we're going to ask a question. I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think the average citizen of this town thinks Jesus is going to say to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, you traitor. That's what they think Jesus is going to say to him. God will judge you for betraying your own people to the Roman government and bringing your own people into poverty. Shame on you, Zacchaeus. That's what everybody was expecting Jesus to say to him. What do you think Zacchaeus expected Jesus to say to him in that moment? Well, from what I read, I honestly don't think Zacchaeus thought Jesus would even give him the time of day, right? He was just watching up from a tree because he wanted to see this famous person that everybody's talking about because he's healing people, he's performing miracles, he's like a famous person, and he just wants to see who this person is. He's interested. And so as far as I can tell, that's all he expected. But that's not what happened. So let's look what happens. So it says, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up at him. That place was the tree where he was. He looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down, and he received him joyfully. Okay, it's, uh, it's brain science time. You ready for some brain science? Because we really, we skip past this crucial part, and uh, once we learn a little bit about how God designed the human brain, um, you start picking things up in the Bible that you've never picked up before. So we read that Zacchaeus, uh, that Jesus looked up at Zacchaeus. He looked at him. What kind of expression do you think was on Jesus' face when he did that? Imagine Jesus' face. Okay, everybody close your eyes. And put yourself in Zacchaeus' place. You arrived to see Jesus. No one would let you in. You could see the faces of all the other people not wanting you there. But you saw the tree, so you climbed up in the tree, and you're waiting, and you see Jesus start to come. He's way down the road, and he's coming towards you. The people are excited. He's coming closer, and he comes close to your tree, and then suddenly he stops, and he looks up, and his eyes meet your eyes. What face do you sense from Jesus? What if I were to tell you that the human brain was designed around this very kind of interaction, this nonverbal kind of encounter first? Our brains right now in this moment are scanning our environment six times a second, looking for faces and eyes that are reflecting to me that they're happy to be with me. The face and eyes of people without words aren't necessary that are telling me I'm special to you, that you're interested in me that you're glad to be with me. Imagine Jesus' face non-verbally saying that to us. And this is called joy. It's really called relational joy. The definition of relational joy, according to neuroscientists, these are not Bible scholars, neuroscientists say, one of the, the most famous scientists, Dr. Alan Shore, says that, that joy is the sparkle in our eye that tells another person, I'm happy to be with you. 
It's the face lighting up, someone's face lighting up when you walk into the room because they're glad you just arrived. And so what do you think Zacchaeus felt in that moment? He was despised by the crowd, right? There weren't a whole lot of, uh, of joyful faces for him in the crowd when he arrived. And then this man comes who's been healing people. He's been performing miracles. He's walking down the street and stops for him, of all people, for him. And he looks at him with a face he did not expect. Non-verbally, Jesus' face is saying, Zacchaeus, I'm really glad you're here in this tree. You are special to me. And, uh, and then his words echo what his face was non-verbally saying, and his words say, hey, I want to go to your house for dinner tonight. You know, my mom told me to never invite myself over to dinner for people. seems like Jesus has no problem with that. And so tying this back into the title of my talk, which is what do we do when the tr traditional Christian prescriptions don't work? The interesting thing about joy is that our character grows in the presence of joy. And when joy is very low, low meaning we don't have very many people's faces shining on us. We don't have very many eyes sparkling that they're happy to be with us. That's low joy. We feel kind of like we're all alone and no one likes us. No one wants to be with us. When our joy is low, our character and our maturity are pretty much stuck. Our discipleship is stuck. And so that's one of the reasons sometimes why Christian, typical Christian solutions don't work is because when our joy is low, nothing works because our brain doesn't engage with it the way God designed. And so we're ignoring uh, an important variable in how, we, in how we grow, how we mature. Our brains, our brains grow in the presence of relational joy, and joy makes everything we do in life work better. And so it's important to notice that Jesus did not give Zacchaeus a nice Bible sermon right then. Instead, he gave him a burst of joy. Boom. I'm glad you're in that tree, Zacchaeus. I'm so glad that I would like you to invite me over to your house for dinner. That's like, boom. That's an explosion of joy that he was, I don't think he was expecting. He went from low joy, which is everybody in the crowd was not happy to be with me, to high joy. Jesus is happy to be with me, the very person I was interested in meeting. Um, and, uh, and that joy, he was never the same after that. Joy is not happiness, however. Joy is happy to be with you-ness. Joy doesn't mean we need to put on this, we need to be happy all the time and kind of plaster a fake Christian smile on all the time. That's not joy. Joy is, you know, like Paul says, be joyful always. If joy is happiness, that's actually kind of a sociopathic thing that Paul just wrote. Some, someone you love dies and you're supposed to be happy. But once we realize joy is that I'm happy to be with you, that means we, what joy, a high joy life means is that we are with each other in the good times and with the hard times, in the exciting times and in the boring times. We're with each other in anger. We're with each other in fear. We're with each other in success. We're with each other in failure, with, with, with each other in um, shame and hopeless despair. And so when Paul says, be joyful always, he's saying, stay connected to each other and to God in everything we do. Joy is not happiness. And so um, joy can be experienced uh, even in, a lot, in our biggest negative emotions. As a matter of fact, the goal of our training, some of the training I do, is to learn to connect all of our big negative emotions to joy so that we're deeply relational in those emotions. 
The questions you ask yourself is, when's the last time you used anger to improve a relationship? I could never, I never saw that in my life growing up, but our brain is designed to learn that skill. When have you used shame to improve a relationship? When have you used fear to improve a relationship? A lot of us have never learned that, but it's something we can learn. Okay, let's all take a nice deep breath. Our brain's like a deep breath too, by the way. So the need for joy is built in and it starts as early as in our infant stage and continues for the rest of our life. When babies are first born, like when you're holding a baby after it's eaten, the baby will look up up at mommy and the baby's face will smile and mommy's face will smile, the baby's face will smile and they start climbing joy mountain. I'm happy to be with you. And then the baby gets so much joy that the baby will actually change its gaze and stop looking at mommy because the baby needs a rest and time to absorb all that wonderful joy. And so after about 10 seconds of Joy Mountain, it needs to rest. It'll rest for maybe 10 or 20 or 30 seconds. And then it's back to mommy, and they're going up Joy Mountain. Mommy, and, and these, this is all nonverbal. It's just all face. And then they're resting. And then they're going up Joy Mountain again, and then they're resting. In the first four months of life, mommy, mommy and baby do that about a couple, two or 300 times a day. And it's the process by which the identity and brain of the child is formed. And it's as important to a baby as food. It's important for, for mothers and fathers to tune when the baby wants to climb Joy Mountain. It's also just as important when, for mothers and fathers to realize when they've had enough joy and they need a little bit of a rest. And we give that baby a rest and let them just relax from the joy, calm down, and absorb that good joy, and then come back again for more. That was built into our circuitry of our brain. And faces are key. Um, if you look into the next verse... This is one of the few times we're actually taught a, a scripture to pray by someone. And, and this is what God taught Moses and Aaron. Aaron prayed this over the people of, of Israel. And he said, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. The face is key. And now Zacchaeus is up in a tree and he finds himself face to face with the living God, whether he realizes that or not. And, uh, and what do we find in the face of Jesus? We find the glory of God. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, for God said, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed where? God's glory is displayed in the face of Jesus. And so Zacchaeus now, he's up in a tree and finds him looking at God face to face. Um, That's interesting because, you know, Zacchaeus got this big dose of God's glory in the face of God, and he did not die that day, right? In the Old Testament, it says, you cannot, God says to Moses, you can't look at my face. If you look at my face, you will die. But now Zacchaeus, the thief and the traitor, was looking at the face of God, and he did not die. Just the opposite. He started to encounter life there. He started to transform, and Zacchaeus was never the same man again. Because there's a time shift in this story. They're all now in the house of Zacchaeus. Everyone is eating and drinking. It's rowdy. It's noisy. He brought all his friends in. And, uh, and then the people started gathering outside, and they were just like, oh, they couldn't believe it. And it says, when they, when they saw it, the people outside, they said they all grumbled. And they said, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. 
You know, you might, if you're listening in on conversations, it might have been something like that thief who caused me to lose my business and then lose my house. Why is Jesus giving this guy even the time of day? Doesn't he know? And you know, they kind of have a point. It's easy to try to, to judge them, but they kind of have a point. It makes absolutely no sense what Jesus is doing until you see the results of his joy. The negative comments somehow got back to Zacchaeus from the crowd outside his house, and he stood up and, and, and listened to what Zacchaeus said. It says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This, my friends, is transformation. There was no list of do's and don'ts that Jesus gave him. No sermons, no Bible. Instead, Jesus gave him a face-to-face encounter with God in human flesh. And that face said to him, you are special to me. And that's all he needed. And then Jesus sat down and had a meal with him. And what do you think that people outside complaining think of now? If I, and I just lost my house and my cars were in despair, lost my job, and I just heard him say fourfold, I'm starting to do the math. Fourfold. Let's say my house times four, my two cars times four, my job salary times four. I think that starts to change me outside from the grumbler as well. And I start to understand. The church was meant to be a high joy place. What that means is when we come together, and I felt that today, we see people's face lighting up on us, and we our face lights up on each other. And together, we feel God's face shining on us. We feel Jesus smiling on us, and we smile back on him. It's this vertical and horizontal network of joy exchanges. Um, like we read in that, and like we sang in the second to the last song, his, our gaze transfix us, transfixed by the gaze of Jesus. And if you'd like more on this topic, you can read up the book I wrote with Jim Wilder, The Other Have a Church. We talk a lot about this. But you might be wondering, how, how do we increase the joy in our church? And uh, one of the things, I was driving on the freeway, and there's a sign there that said, uh, that's like a safety sign, it said, phones down, faces up. That's, some really good dri- that's a really good driving advice, but it's also really good parenting advice. Our children need our faces. They need our faces to shine on them. They need to feel the delight of our eyes sparkling at them. All the people around us do. We can practice this, and we can get better at it. Another thing is, is there's really, really good exercises of gratitude. Gratitude is the on-ramp to joy. And uh, I, I've taught some of your people here some really good um, gratitude exercises, and I, I encourage you to ask them to, to pass them along and start doing those. I do a five-minute ec- gratitude exercise every morning, and it's changed my life. I've been doing it for about five years. And so if you intentionally start building joy on Sundays together in your small groups, in your families, in your neighborhoods, with your friends, you will be surprised, just like Zacchaeus, the changes you see in the people around you. Zacchaeus saw the face of God. He felt the joy of Jesus, and he was never the same man again. That is the power of joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you desire for us to feel your face shining on us. And Jesus, I thank you that you shine the glory of God when we sense your face smiling and shining on us. May this place, this church, 
be a community where when people show up who don't know anybody, they can feel the warmth and faces shining on them, and they can feel your face shining down on everyone. And may they grow more and more with the warmth and living in the warmth and the sunshine of your smile. We thank you that you're delighted to be with us and that we get to return that delight to you. Amen.